want to talk for a second about missions. Because we say missions, but you know there's nothing missions, it's mission. That we're on a mission with God. God's given us, when he calls us into his kingdom, we join him on a mission. And the mission is to take his message to every person on the planet. And uh, we focus on reaching lost people around the world who have never heard about Jesus. I got a letter in the mail this week from a family, friends of Pastor Paul's from college, that are going to be missionaries to Turkey. She's an attorney, and he's a banker, and uh, they're going to Turkey to be church planters. And they said in there that in the, in the nation of Turkey, um, only about 1% has even heard the gospel preached ever. And so we mission, we're on a mission with God, so we give financially, and we also send people off into missions. People feel called the missions and we we raise them up and we equip them and we send them off from our congregations to take the world gospel around the world but the mission doesn't stop with just reaching people over somewhere else the mission also extends to right here the mission is about going across the world but also across the street and every one of us is on that mission with god also we all have a part to play in reaching the world we all have a part to play in reaching our world you have a sphere of influence around you that no one else on the planet can reach that sphere of influence like you can. God's raised you up. He's called you by name, made you his child, so that you can influence people in your world, in your sphere of influence. And that's where you, in essence, are a missionary. And so the last Sunday of our missions emphasis, we are going to talk about reaching our mission field here. And to do that today, I really was, I was uh, I'm going to do it myself, but I, I really was watching someone in our church. And I've watched that person do a great job of reaching their world, their mission field. And so I asked him if he'd be willing to come and preach today. And you say, well, just a guy from our church come in and preach? Well, he is just a guy from our church, but he's more than that. A lot of you know Chris Elfline. I'll bring him up in a second. But Chris, and he have been with us for a while now, just about a year. But Chris, before coming here, um, is an assembly, he's an Assemblies of God pastor. He pastored a church in Oklahoma for four years. And uh, before that was at Southwestern Assemblies of God Bible College. And But... His original roots are in Cedarburg as a boy and then Milwaukee. And uh, so been around this area for a while. And I've watched as God has used him to reach people in his own world. Family members, co-workers, different people finding out about Jesus through his life. And I thought, you know, what a better way for me to allow you to get inspired by God from his word than to see that, you know what, God uses us right where we are. And sometimes you say this, you say, oh yeah, well, Pastor Mark, you're a pastor. God uses you special. Can I tell you that's not true? I will tell you this, my ability to reach lost people in the world is inhibited by the fact that Rev is in front of my name. When I tell them, when I tell people I'm a pastor, which I never do, I don't look like a pastor. This does not look like a pastor. You know, I don't, I try not to look like a pastor. Because the second that they think I'm a pastor, they go from talking about, you know, the blankety blank and brewers don't win a blankety blank and game to, oh, let's discuss world peace. Every time. Oh, I've been praying for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm like, you're a liar. You are not. And so, um, so what happens is you say, well, somehow God uses you different. Yeah, it's harder to reach people for Christ when Rev is in front of your name in your own world. I'm telling you, it's harder. And so I don't ever tell people that that's my job. I don't hide it, not I'm ashamed of it, but I understand that they're not going to, I can't influence them spiritually the same because they think I'm doing my job. And so what I wanted you to get, to get today is that, that um, you've been hide, we've been hiding the fact that Rev is in front of your name. Not really hiding it on purpose, but just saying, but just saying you know what? Um, God uses all of us. He wants to use all of us to, to reach lost people. And so I'm going to invite this morning Chris Elfline to come up and, and to share the word of God with us and, and uh, to just share with us what God has got in your heart for us for missions. 
As Pastor Mark was talking, I was thinking to myself that there is no such thing or there's not supposed to be such a thing as an undercover Christian, but we try to be undercover pastors every once in a while. At my place of work right now, I'm working a full-time job at uh, Northwestern Mutual, and very few people know that I'm actually a pastor, but most of them, if not all of them, know that I am a Christian. So I wanted to start out this morning, well, I have to make a confession. I'm kind of a statistics geek. I like statistics. I like reading statistics. And one of my favorite places to go and find statistics is um, a website run by a group called the Barna Group. Uh, The Barna Group is a Christian group that studies spiritual things that are going on within our culture and in our society. Trends of people coming in and out of church. What's going on? What are people believing in the United States of America and beyond? And so I like to keep up with what they're studying and what they're putting out on their website. Um, one of the people associated with that group, his name is David Kinneman. And so um, I found some of the statistics that he came up with that appeared in his group called, Un- or his book called Unchristian, uh, interesting and a little eye-opening. And so I'd like to share those with you. Uh, he did a study about um, a- different age groups in the United States. And where they were at with the church, whether they were church members, churchgoers, believers, or people that were kind of on the outside looking in. Now, he divided them into three main groups. The first group was adult mosaics and busters. That's what he called them. Uh, This is ages 18 to 41. And what he found was in that age group, 37% of those people, ages 18 to 41, were outsiders to Christianity. That's what he called them. Which, that translates into 34 million people in the United States. The boomers, which was the next group, uh, was ages 42 to 60. 27% of them were outsiders, he called them, to Christianity. And that that group, um, that 27% is equal to 21 million people. The elders, uh, which is the third group that he, um, that he broke this down into, was ages 61 and over, and 23% of them were outsiders to Christianity, and that tra- translates into an additional 12 million people. It's a lot of people in the United States. And so I made a couple of observations based on what I read, and two things I noticed that I wanted to share with you. Uh, number one was that the younger the age group, the higher the percentage of people were outsiders to Christianity. So the younger he got, the younger his, his audience got, the more of them were outsiders to Christianity. The other thing that really struck me about this study was that the total amount of people that he counted that were outside of Christianity or estimated were outside of Christianity was 67 million people. 67 million people in the United States were uh, categorized as outsiders to Christianity, basically non-believers. What does all this mean? It means there's still a lot of people in the United States that need to hear about Jesus. Amen? Amen? And that number is climbing. As the age group gets younger, the more people are finding themselves outside of the church. 
But my fear is, is that the body of Christ has kind of forgotten how to accomplish its mission. From my own personal observation, and this is my personal observation, there seem to be a lot of Christians wrapped up in the political process and the current political debates. Now, don't uh, misunderstand me on this one. I'm glad that we live in a democracy. I am glad that we can vote for the leaders of our country. I'm glad that we have the ability to put our two cents worth in as far as what are the rules that we are going to go by, that we are going to govern um, our people with in this country. I'm glad we have that right to be able to contribute to that. But we will not win people to Christ or improve the moral climate in the United States through political means. We're not going to do it. We may change the laws, but we're not going to change their hearts or their minds. There's something much more powerful that we can do on a personal level than vote, and that's share our faith with somebody. I know the thought of sharing our faith can arouse mixed emotions. Many of us may have tried in the past uh, to share our faith with people with various levels of success. And some of us are just plain afraid of the reaction that we will get by trying to share our faith with somebody. But I believe that there are some misconceptions that we tend to have about sharing our faith that lead to our spirit of trepidation or, or our being afraid of sharing our faith. And I'd like to talk about that today. So today we're going to look at a, a biblical model of how to share our faith with others. In the book of Acts we read about the birth and the growth of the, the church beginning with the day of Pentecost. Then we read about stories about how the apostles and their companions continued to venture further and further with the gospel message and how people were saved and, and the church grew. Today we're going to read about an encounter between Philip and a government official from Ethiopia which resulted in yet another transformed life. So if you have your Bibles, please open to Acts chapter 8. We're going to start with verse 25. Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 25. It says, So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went... And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. 
The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now some translations have this next uh, verse in there, so I'm going to read it. And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him. I think that's probably a really, that would be really cool, wouldn't it? Hasn't happened to me yet, though. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. That's a pretty powerful story. But how many people think that God is still capable of all those things, including snatching us up and transporting us somewhere else? I think God is still capable of all those things. But the thing that uh, struck me the most and what I want to pull out of this is that God, it was God who was working, working in the Ethiopian's life, and God just happened to incorporate Philip into his plan of salvation for that man. And so the first thing I want you to notice is that God is at work. A couple of things about this story. It was God who told Philip, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. God told him that. So it was God that arranged this meeting between Philip and the Ethiopian. What does the very next verse say? So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch. There just happened to be a man on this road that God directed him to. And not only that, but the Ethiopian was studying a passage of Scripture. And it says, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, not only was he reading the prophet Isaiah, but he was reading Isaiah 53, 7 through 8, which we know prophesied about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Hmm, coincidence? I don't think so. The Ethiopian man was most likely a Jewish convert because the Bible says he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So he probably would have been familiar with this passage. He may have heard it many times before, but this time, something was different. When Philip approached the man, he said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? So for some reason in this moment, this man read this passage of scripture that he was probably familiar with, but something stirred within him that he may have never felt before. One thing we have to realize is that to take a sinner and bring them to a point where they are ready and willing to turn away from their sin and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's a long process. It's a long process and it's a difficult process. Because the problem is, we human beings are human beings. We have this thing called this human nature. And within this human nature, and I hope that I'm not alone in this because I'm speaking of myself, we tend to be prideful. 
we tend to be stubborn and we tend to be independent, don't we? And so prideful. We do not want to admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Nobody wants to admit that they're wrong. Nobody wants to admit that they're a Savior. I don't have any t-shirts that say, hey, I'm a sinner. The problem is, as we get to a point where, and I've seen this many times, that we invent our own standard of righteousness. How many times have, have you heard somebody say, well, I'm a good person. I believe I'm a good person. Well, what are you basing that on? What are we basing that on? Oftentimes, when people do uh, find out that I'm a pastor, they start defending themselves, almost offering up a defense of an explanation of how they're a good person and how they're living a good life. Almost as if they're in fear of me, you know, coming down on them, bringing the hammer of judgment down. That's not my job. But we also tend to be stubborn, right? We don't want anybody, we don't want to submit to anyone, do we? Not even God. The United States doesn't want to submit to God. We've been trying to get God out of this country for decades. On a personal level, we don't want to submit to God. Oftentimes that translate, translates into us running from God, running in the opposite direction until we can't run anymore. Independent. We do what we want to do. There are just certain things that we sometimes refuse to give up. Sometimes it's just our sins. Sometimes it's priorities, earthly treasures, wrong relationships. But all these things keep our eyes off of God. We want to do what we want to do. But the thing about God is that God's not going to force us to repent or accept Christ as our Savior. He's just not going to do it. Instead, He works subtly. He works patiently to bring us gently to a point where we are willing to do that ourselves. When we're willing to submit... And so I hope a couple of the things that we learned from today's passage is that, number one, that there were signs that God was already at work in the Ethiopian's life before Philip came along. And I think this is important to realize because when we think about sharing our faith with others, we can be pretty confident that God has probably already been working in their lives. It may not look like it. They're not going to come out and say it. But I believe that God is working in everybody's life because the Bible says that God does not want anybody to perish but all to come to repentance. I wanted to share about this, uh, about a woman that uh, I have been recently um, sharing my faith with at, uh, at my place of work. Her name is Julia. She's a single mother. Um, she's had a pretty difficult life, it seems. Uh, and we sit across from each other. And I was able to share with her that I'm a Christian. And I was able to, you know, just basically share my faith with her. And one day, we were talking and, and I felt like God was telling me to do something. And I didn't really act on it right away. But I, was, I felt like God was telling me to go buy her a gas card. One of those little gas cards, kind of like a gift certificate, but to a gas station. I didn't know why or what for. So I prayed about it, and I just wanted to make sure that I was not, you know, crazy or hearing things. You know, you gotta, you got to get that confirmation sometimes. And God kept telling me, get her a gas card. 
So I went to the, ga uh, the gas station that's right down the street from our work, and I got her a $25 gas card. I brought it and just put it on her desk. I didn't even really want her to know it was from me, but she obviously figured it out anyways. But after that, she, she shared with me that that day, that very day, she was trying to figure out how she was going to get home from work because she had no gas. And that really spoke to her. In that moment, she realized that God was real. And real in her own life. And not only that he was real and in, real in her own life, but God was interested in her. It was a powerful thing because she went on to go on and tell me that she went home and shared that uh, story with her family. Her family, their, one of her sisters was weeping and... You know, it was just a really powerful thing. And she also went on to tell me how she had decided that she was going to start going back to church again. She got involved in a church where she's now going every Sunday. Um, God is just waiting to turn people's lives around. But God is already at work in people's lives. I didn't know that that lady needed gas. I had no idea Julia needed gas. And I told her that. I said... I didn't know. God told me to do that. So don't thank me. Thank God. But you see, we must be prepared to do our part. We've got to be prepared. We've got to be ready to do our part. Going back to our passage, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So it's, we're going back to the point where the Ethiopian was asking Philip about this scripture, about this passage in Isaiah. And Philip, it says, opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. The phrase, then Philip opened his mouth, it's, it's kind of an intriguing phrase, and you might just pass over it, but usually this type of phrase is, is used to describe kind of the short pause before someone begins to talk at length about something. Like if you ask somebody a question about something, and they, they pause for a minute, and then they start talking at length about whatever you ask them about. And this is kind of the same feel that you get here, that Philip was ready. He, he was thinking exactly how he was going to relate this scripture and expound upon this scripture. And so we get this little pause, almost as if, you know, he was just taking a deep breath because he had a lot to say. And it says, it says he preached Jesus to him. I like that simple phrase. Another simple phrase. He preached Jesus to him. You know, though he may have talked at length, um, referring to Philip, Luke's description of what he talked about was short and to the point, wasn't it? Simple. Simple message. Luke didn't have to go on and on about the different points and what he expounded upon and, and um, his exegesis of the passage and his definitions and... Um, his application into the Ethiopian's life, all it says is he preached Jesus to him. Sounds pretty simple, pretty basic. First Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. 
always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. So if somebody asks you about your faith, why you believe what you believe, be ready to explain it. That's what he's talking about. We need to be prepared so that when the time comes and God has arranged an opportunity for us to share our faith, much like he did with Philip, because God will do that. God will do that. He's working in people's lives, and he's going to bring people across our path. We don't have to go out and find them. He will bring them to us. But when he does that, when he opens up that opportunity, are we going to be ready to share our faith? Philip was ready. It was apparent he had a lot to say, but he kept it simple. We need to be prepared. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. Now that sounds very simple, but in my experience, when you, when you ask Christians what they believe and why they believe it, they oftentimes find it very hard to communicate that to other people. It's very important that we can do that. So this may sound difficult, but it's not. We need to be able to share the basic components of the gospel message. We have to be able to preach Jesus to somebody in a very simple way. And one of the ways that I have always incorporated, we call the Roman road to salvation. Many of you may have heard of the Roman road to salvation. Um, But it's four scriptures, basically all contained within the book of Romans, that spells out in a very concise way what the gospel message is. And I'll read them to you if you're taking notes. Hopefully uh, you have a pen um, handy. You can write on your bulletin. I believe there's a space for that. In case you were wondering what those lines were for. First scripture, Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The basic human condition, a universal problem that we can't solve ourselves. It applies to everyone. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have to to be honest with people that God is a God of love, but God is a God of justice as well. And on the last day, we're all going to be standing before Him. That's a universal truth that nobody's going to be able to avoid. Romans 6.23 is the next one. It says, For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Another very simple but harsh reality that we need to share with people. The wages of sin is death. Basically what that means is uh, our sin earns us eternal death. We're not talking about physical death. We're talking about a spiritual death. Separation from God for eternity. After we die. The next scripture, Romans 5.8. It says, Romans 5.8. But God God demonstrates his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the hope right here. It sounds pretty bleak in the first couple of... Uh, scriptures there, but we have to be honest with people and let them know why they need God. 
And now we have the hope. God demonstrates his own love toward us that even while we were in this very bad predicament, Christ died for us. And then Romans 10.9, here's where we apply it directly to them. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can remember those four scriptures, that is the basic gospel message. You don't have to know much more than that. Just simply preach Jesus to somebody. Share four simple scriptures with them. That's the gospel message in a nutshell. The other thing we need to do is we need to be able to recount what God has done in our own lives. See, we can tell them scripture and what God has said, but we need to bring it down to earth here. How does that apply to us? What has happened in our own lives? That's why we call it a testimony. A testimony used to be a very... uh, Uh, a very effective way of advertising. You get a famous person on TV saying, I like this product. That's calling a, that's, that's a testimony. A testimonial. And so, we're taking this scripture, we're taking this gospel message and saying, this is how it has worked in my life. I'm not just telling you this because I've read about it, but I'm telling you this because I've experienced it. So, what I would encourage you to do is take time and meditate and pray about this. Because if somebody asked you, what has God done in your life? What would you say? What would you say? The last thing I want you to notice about this passage of scripture is that the Holy Spirit was involved. The Holy Spirit was involved in this. It says, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. So the the Holy Spirit was directing Philip throughout this whole ordeal. And then in verse 39 of our passage, it says, When they came up out of the water, again, this is the cool part, at least for me, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him. So it's obvious in this account that Luke has a special focus on the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit had direct intervention in what was going on and the Holy Spirit played a vital role in the conversion of this Ethiopian. Another familiar passage of scripture involving the Holy Spirit is the day of Pentecost. And we know on the day of Pentecost that the group was gathered in the upper room. And on that day, in that moment, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses for Christ. Now this is pretty significant because John gives us some insights at the end of his gospel as to the state of mind of the disciples after Jesus' crucifixion. Because he says that the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So they kind of, right after the crucifixion, they kind of shut themselves up and kept out of the limelight for a while. And it doesn't tell us exactly why, but you know, you can probably 
it would be safe to guess that the Jews had just put Jesus, their leader, to death. It would be reasonable to think that the Jews might want to just wipe out all of his followers as well. And we can see that fear in Peter as he denied Jesus the night he was being interrogated and interviewed. But on the day of Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, Peter boldly stood up with the other 11 apostles and preached the gospel message in a powerful way. So powerful, in fact, that the Bible says there were added about 3,000 souls. So about 3,000 people got saved just based on that message. Pretty powerful. God desires to empower us and give us boldness to be his witnesses to a lost and dying world as well. You know, who can watch the news these days and not be grieved by the stories that they hear? Right? And I'm sure most of us on the one hand wish that we could do something about it, but on the other hand feel a little overwhelmed by the amount of evil in the world. It's especially scary sometimes because we live in a society that is becoming increasingly hostile toward Christians. But God knows that we face this battle. God knows what we're facing. And God wants to empower us. He wants to give us that boldness to be the witnesses that we need to be. He wants to baptize us in His Holy Spirit just like He did those apostles on the day of Pentecost. God wants to give us that power. God wants to give us that boldness. God wants to fill us to overflowing with His Holy Spirit so that we can be His witnesses, so that we can stand up boldly in front of a crowd if God so calls us to do that and share the gospel message. You know, before I went off to Bible college, I was the manager of a bank, uh, a branch manager. And I had gotten the job two years prior to, I left, to the time I left for Bible college. Now, I was at the, at the bank uh, about two weeks and something happened. Um, at the end of the night, we gather up all the checks that people deposit into the bank. And we have to, in turn, go and deposit that into an even bigger bank, the federal bank, so that that money can pass... Um, through the federal bank back into the local bank and we can give it to the people. Well, somebody had stolen a big bunch of these checks. And so my boss's solution, which my boss was the vice president of the bank, her solution was that they wanted to call everybody and make up a lie and tell them something else had happened and Asked them, would they please get another copy of that check so we could go and deposit them. Otherwise, we'd be out the money. So she calls me into her office. And I'm the new guy, so I get assigned this. And she says, she says I want you to do this. I want you to you know, tell these people this story. And um, would you be willing to do this? And before I even had a moment to think about it, the words were already coming out of my mouth. No, as a matter of fact, I don't want to do that. I will do anything else to help you, but I will not lie for you. Now keep in mind, this is the vice president of the bank. I've had the job two weeks. So 
After I blurted this out, I'm thinking to myself, well, it was a nice two weeks. <laughs> Needless to say, I had the job two years. That particular boss was very hostile toward me, but I was able to pray for her. And throughout my experience there, I was able to share with her my faith at different moments in time. So I left for Bible college, and a couple months after I left for Bible college, I got down there, you know, we, we leave for school in August. I get down there in August. Well, here's January, and I need my tax information. So I call back to the bank. I say, I need my tax information, and I talk to her. And she says, Chris, you'll never believe what happened. She said, I got saved. And I know that you were praying for me. So basically she's saying, it's all your fault. And I said, hey, I'm willing to take the blame for that one. Really, it was God. Honestly, it was God. But God used me in that instance. But God and the Holy Spirit, I feel, gave me that boldness to say what I needed to say in that moment in time. And so God transformed her life because I was bold. And I was able to share my faith. If I had thought about it, maybe for a half an hour, 20 minutes or so, I may have tried to come up with a more diplomatic solution than what had actually happened. But the Holy Spirit didn't allow me to. So God wants to use us to play a part in what he is doing to bring others to salvation. It's God's work. It's God's work. We play a part in it. So I hope that takes some of the burden off your shoulders if you're thinking that we have to do it all, that we have to take somebody from beginning to end and make sure they get saved. It's God's work. He's already working on it. We just step, up, step in at a specific moment in time. And we need to be prepared to share our faith. If that moment does arise, what are we going to say? What are we going to say? And lastly, God really desires to empower us to be his witnesses. He does. He's got power to spare. <clears throat> In closing, I just wanted to share with you a couple things. Julia, the first person that I talked about that I bought the gas card for, a couple weeks ago, she came up to me at lunch and she shared with me how she had run into this young lady, about 18 years old, and they were talking, and she, she got to the point where she was able to share her faith with this young 18-year-old. And she was so excited. She was so excited. She was just beaming because she just thought it was so incredible. And she was able to impact this young lady's life by sharing her faith. But you know why? Because I first shared my faith. Jody, my boss that I told you about, she got saved. So did the rest of her family. Her daughter is going to Southeastern Assemblies of God University this upcoming school year. And she is running a, a prison ministry in a ladies' prison. I simply shared my faith. God did the rest. Isn't that incredible? I read this quote, and, I'll, uh, and I'm going to end with this, by James, I think his last name is Strachan. It says, Saving knowledge is diffused over the earth. It's spread out over the earth. Not like sunlight, 
but like torchlight, which is passed from hand to hand. So there are so many people around us that need the light of Christ. And God is working to bring it to them. But the question is, when God leads them to you, will you be ready to pass the torch?